Welcome to the My Rules of Edge podcast. I'm Tom Barbelay. Today, last time I recorded, I actually had additional topics that I just forgot to record on. So I've taken copious quantities of notes for today's recording, and hopefully that'll make things a lot better. So, as noted, we have two house guests with us currently. They're going on a bike ride with my wife, which gives me a few minutes to record a podcast, which is always a luxury. I wanted to talk a little bit about six months since the Plitniks medals arrived. I've learnt a lot of stuff through this time, and I've never really had an opportunity to record information specifically about the Plentnik's medals or really my exploration into like, medal collecting as a thing in general. And part of that is that it's very curious. The whole medal collecting hobby is very strange, and it's in many ways preface. I mean, I've, I find this even with regards to my knowledge of the Second World War that some of it is just not appropriate in common society. I had a project at work where I had the opportunity to name it. And because of what it was, my initial thought was to name it after films about the Second World War. And then I realized that this wasn't, you know, we, we learn about inclusion and diversity and the Second World War doesn't breed inclusion and diversity. So the metal collecting thing is very curious because really the only medals of value, well, common uh, that are of value, come from the Second World War. You go outside that area, and this is the Platinix medals fundamentally, they don't really hold the value. So if we want to talk about provenance, I found more information about the Platinix medals after I purchased them. I found the previous auction, which was in 2015, where they were sold in their current form onto, I'm assuming, the folks that I bought them from. And they were sold at about 40% of what I paid for them, which I think is probably about right. I mean, you're dealing with a store, brick-and-mortar store, that has a physical location in central London. You know, I'm not particularly fussed by that. But what it made me realise is that these medals within the medal-collecting hobby do not have an intrinsic value. They are, I don't know... They don't have the same value that the Second World War medals have. And what I've explored through this as well, so the medals that I purchased were attempted to be sold maybe six months prior to me purchasing them. And I don't know how much they were trying to sell them for then, but they had added a few new medals to the group and tried to pass them off as the Pletniks medals. And then after I purchased the Pletniks medals, which I don't think I've narrated in any podcast, I was contacted again, well, after my wife purchased them, I was contacted. They had two additional medals which I purchased, which were supposed to be from the Pletniks set, but they weren't in the Pletniks auction from 2015, although medals that looked the same were on the, you know, the prominent drawing of Pletniks where he has, you know, 16 odd medals. So it was very interesting, and I started to learn actually through this process that medal sales houses frequently do that they frequently find additional medals and try to you know fill out gaps so to speak in this thing because i think ultimately the provenance of medals is very poor now since this time i've made two additional medal purchases i should point that out i purchased a set of medals and documents including the prisoner of war records but no actual photographs of a fellow who was a not even an officer in the German army uh, in the Second World War. He fought in basically all the major theatres except for North Africa. Uh, and he has a really fascinating story around it. I mean, his narrative is probably 
just as interesting as Pletnik's in some fundamental sense. His grandson is on Facebook. <laughs> and his grandson is in his 50s. So, but there are no actual photographs of them. But his grandson, you can look at his face and think, okay, so his grandfather, when I saw the photo of his grandson, I thought, this is like I see this man as being. He was a tailor um, out of the war. And he had quite a decorated history and did a lot of really interesting stuff, but never really, you know, never really pushed beyond a particular rank. And he was fascinating because at the when he was in the French prisoner of war camp, he was very heavily interviewed and corralled, associated with whether he was a Nazi, whether he was a member of the NSDAP. And he wasn't, even though he had, you know, friends and associates that were part of that. He wasn't a Nazi at all. And he ended up working in the camps, actually, and getting paid in the camps as well. But it's a fascinating history to look at this fellow who was born just as the First World War started. I think his father was killed in the First World War. And then his trajectory into military service and his survival, kind of miraculous survival through the Second World War. Even though he'd been part of Barbarossa, he was very thankfully on the, you know, the Western side of, uh, you know, the Berlin Divide and was picked up by the French. And then he has all the paperwork associated with that. And that, to me, was fascinating. I, I love the history part of this as well. So that made me realise that of the medal collection, probably a couple of the medals in that collection had also just been loose medals that were thrown in. One of the stickers of one of the medals as a loose medal was in fact attached to the packaging material of the parcel that was sent. And through this as well, I realised what the value... Well, firstly, I learnt what the medals meant in the German army in the First and Second World War and also earlier wars. I'd never really gone through that process. So I have done an additional kind of history dive, but I don't think I'm going to buy any more medals. The Pletnik set, I have finally, literally as of last night, done a full translation of his biography and have a printed version, two printed versions of that coming towards me because Pletnik's is pretty well... I have him as my, you know, not screensaver, but my, what do you call it, the background graphics on computers. There are some photos of him in the late 19th century looking considerably more disheveled. I mean, when he's, in a, a, you know, a man of his 70s, not quite as proud as the earlier, you know, drawings of him. But this was also the period of time where he did his work in the Franco-Prussian War and got awarded from both sides. Although the medal history does not show or, well, I originally thought that the German medal that he received through the Franco-Prussian War had been sold by the folks that sold me the medals. But it appears that it wasn't part of the set that was sold at auction in 2015. So that obviously disappeared earlier. And the 2015 auction was interesting. It went to a charity called MIND in the UK, which I probably should look more up about. But yeah, the sale of those medals went to a charity. So it was part of a charitable donation or something. Anyway, so that's the, the Pletnik's experience. That's my deep toe dipping in, uh, you know, metal collecting. But yeah, without the history, without the written history, I mean, I see a lot of, you know, individual medals and individual, you know, certificates and stuff go online. It doesn't really interest me. And there's a, there are a few, you know, things that I see with photo records. So one of them as an example was one of the camp guards on the camp leadership, actually, of a concentration camp. And I looked at that and I just thought, where's the value in these documents? They've already been, you know, thoroughly gone through. They were charging three and a half thousand pounds, I think. Actually, there were a set of documents that had been split up. 
If you added them all together, it would have been about £5,000. I just thought these documents have been poured over so much. There's no, there's no authentic meat left in them. It just basically shows this guy was incredibly vain and liked, you know, ordering from various Nazi attributed fashion houses. So, you know, that was all very curious. You end up in these worlds with these things, which are, you know, I don't think worth what the, you know, the, the dollar amount is supposed to be. So, you know, <laughs> in the future, could some other medals come my way? I don't know. Highly unlikely. Without a really juicy, interesting narrative behind them, it's not really what I'm in this thing for. So that's the conclusion to the Plotnik's experience so far. I'm going to go through the biography with a fine-tooth comb. The question is always there to rewrite the biography in, in proper, proper spoken English, not poorly translated French. Maybe a project. Who knows? I think the, the romance of the, I mean, you've got, what's it called? Barry Lyndon. You've got the, what's it called? The duelists. You've got these movies about people that existed in not necessarily this time specifically, but you know, what makes an interesting film of these events? Well, the duelist, you know, was interesting in some regard. Barry Lyndon is just a curious story. And I think Flindix is a curious story. There's a lot of intrigue and a lot of stuff associated with the creation of the Belgian state, which I guess for Belgian nationalists, you know, that might be something that's interesting. For general folk, maybe not so much. He's a kind of curious, kind of Forrest Gump-like character in terms of just being at the right places at the right time. I think he's probably got more intellect in some regards, some, I don't know, some more nuances perhaps than strict Forrest Gump in this. But it's the same with the, the German fellow that I've, you know, have his medals and documents for. It's the same thing. You get a sense that this person had an amazingly interesting life. That in and of its insight and the reading and the surrounding stuff, this is basically what I'm in it for. And the other aspects to it just strike me as a little bit surreal. I recorded a video on Monty's Reviews recently where I talked a little bit about the Operation Sea Lion myth. And this is something that I feel really strongly about. And it's something that I, as I've done more reading about it, I've realized that Operation Sea Lion is a strange touch point. And the way it's been prefaced primarily on the Nazi release documentation, but also like what has been embraced associated with Operation Sea Lion, I just find considerably curious. This is also and I have these books around me somewhere. This is also the bolt action rules for Operation Sea Lion and all the, I mean, basically all the books that are written on Operation Sea Lion are based on the one very paper thin, you know, Nazi linked street directory, which really is a very curious document to base anything on. And what I also found interesting was I was reading that when Sea Lion was played as a war game, here actually like a war game with, I'm assuming probability and these kind of things by the US military. They used 80,000 infantry troops and 60,000 paratroopers to represent what sea line would have been in the German forces. In the video, I explore this notion that Operation Sea Line has always had a kind of softly, softly narrative associated with it. The view that the Nazis would have la landed millions of men is never talked about with regards to sea line. It's interesting when you look at it in contrast with Barbarossa, where it was like 3.8 million men was part, were part of Barbarossa. The Nazis would have used something similar with the sea lion, I would have thought. I would have thought, you know, in the order of maybe three million men. I mean, they wouldn't have done it. The whole notion that they would have done it with, you know, 140,000 troops just strikes me as really very strange. The fact that people would even, like, this is the, this is the extent of the discourse associated with the sea lion. And I think there's a genuine underlying fear of if you talked about sea lion in terms of what it would have practically have been like, that it actually 
produces a, I don't know, it's just like, it's a taboo subject. Sea line to its full extent is a taboo subject. You can't discuss it associated with substantial numbers of troops landing. And the notion really that the wave of troops probably wouldn't have, you know, stopped until they hit Manchester. They would have just sailed through the UK defences. You see this, uh, I watch kind of canal boat and walking videos in the UK, and you see them occasionally passing pillboxes. And you just think, against, you know, three million highly motivated German troops, what are you, what's, what's going on here? <laughs> you know, you've got Dad's army perched in a few pillboxes. And I think that psychology really, people don't want to admit, they don't want to realise how close potentially the UK was for being completely and utterly decimated. And certainly it would have been a circumstance where, you know, everyone was so far, the US was so far behind in that circumstance that that would have severely changed the outcome of the Second World War. And ultimately, you know, Barbarossa probably would have occurred after that as well. But Germany would have been in a distinctly different place if there was no location to amass troops for D-Day, potentially through North Africa, potentially through a variety of different factors. But still, it would have been a very different war if Sea Lion to its full capacity had actually occurred. I wonder what Sea Lion to its true extent played as a war game would actually look like. The offerings from Bolt Action are very poor. I don't even know if it would have been street, street fighting. I don't even know if it would have been like that. I think you would have had probably a lot of encirclement, perhaps multiple Stalingrads. I mean, that would be interesting to play out, you know? London as Stalingrad. <laughs> Birmingham as Stalingrad. These things play out very curiously. So the nature of War Games' simulation, I think, is really fascinating here. It was something that came up in a video. I wanted to talk a little bit more about it here. Let us discuss the lead pile. So when I last recorded... I hadn't really... There's lots of things have actually changed since I've last recorded. We're going to be probably living a good portion of next year in Las Vegas and Southern California. And my hope is that we'll find a place in Southern California and, and live a good portion in SoCal. But we'll probably just end up going back to our house in Las Vegas and then, you know, finding a base in SoCal as we need it. And that is quite a substantial move for us. I mean, I think... It, it's all doable, but it's just something that takes time and energy and probably will impact podcasts in a certain way. And this has been, in some regard, the motivating force, the motivating influence in getting the lead pile under control. So what I have done, uh, the fellow in Aptos, close by, I've given him a cutoff date. He will not finish what he has by the cutoff date. It's mid-October. So he'll send me back everything that he hasn't started, and he'll aim to finish a bunch of stuff by that date. But for me, it was a little disappointing because basically he's had them for, I don't know, in terms of his dedicated time, maybe four and a half months. And really, he's kind of struggled painting a unit of Terminators through that time. And he had maybe three or four times that following, but he just has no capacity for that. The stuff on the East Coast, I've basically, I'm on the final commission for that. Uh, we've worked out the money. I paid on par with half of that. A little bit left to go in the previous commission as well, but that isn't yet completed. So that is looking as a body of work as something that's doable. I'll probably get it back early next quarter, uh, not this, well, early quarter, first quarter 2021. Uh, my friend Rochi in uh, near Hull, 
he's in a position currently where he's working between 40 and 60 hours a week on my lead pile. And he's getting more into the kind of specialist specific figure painting, which is really the antithesis of what I need. So what I'm saying to him is now pick out figures that you want to do that to. By all means, do that to them. But also there are like large banks of just get some paint on them army kind of things that he probably needs to think about as well. He's having a lot of fun doing the high detail stuff. And you'll see that from my Facebook feed. But at the same point, I've said, you know, look, winter's coming. I don't necessarily want him to go through kind of winter burnout where he's working, you know, 60 hour weeks through winter. It's just not particularly civilized, low light, all these kind of things. But I, he's pretty insistent that he wants to maintain that kind of slog. And my preference is volume to a certain extent. I mean, the quality is beautiful, but there's a lot of volume stuff that needs to be done as well. And I'd like him to kind of slog through some of that volume and get some of the quality. So an interesting balance there. He will be the kind of continuing, he'll be the continuing 2021 figure painter. And through the stuff he's producing currently, I have no problem with that. But, you know, it's getting the blend right associated with kind of mass figures and individual figure painting through that. I was originally going to send him a bunch more stuff, particularly if we were going to use both the spare rooms, uh, both the guest room and my normally podcasting game room uh, for a guest. Then I was going to send him additional stuff. I've got uh, some Valhalla, some original Harlequin figures, and a few other bits and pieces I was going to get him. Uh, but I held on to them with the view that he's got plenty to work on. And, you know, we'll just work through what he has. We'll work through the times, these kind of things. I'm not particularly fussed with regards to that. So I talked a little bit about the move next year. Part of it is probably just in a kind of December time frame, packing things up and getting things ready. And I'm trying to minimize the amount of stuff that's in storage, particularly because hopefully, hopefully we will have our house back in Las Vegas. And that has a good quantity. I mean, that's basically a modern version of the house that we own currently. And so, well, it's, we own both of them, but it's a modern version of where we live currently. So, but then again, the view is if we stay longer, then we'll probably sell the Vegas house. And, you know, there's there are all these bits and pieces that have to, you know, it's like a Tetris game. Uh, so it's working all these things out. Um, and part of that is probably we're just rounding out. We're doing the last session of the Just Playing Chaos game. And then I'm debating actually taking a break. I think I'll probably need a break through all the moving and iteration and low light levels and all this kind of stuff. Maybe resuming the Just Playing Chaos games early in the year, maybe running three or four sessions in various areas. The feedback that I've received from my coworkers in particular is they like floating games. So they like games where they may or may not be able to attend, where it's a kind of returning theme that they can get back into. I wasn't really working on that. I was working on a lot more kind of narrative scenario stuff. But, you know, it was all very, all very interesting to work through, you know, what's going to happen, particularly with the move as well. Concluding the final session, thinking about of the sessions that I was planning on running, running maybe a few micro sessions, well, a few two or three uh, game sessions, and just working out how to fill the end of the year with the additional chaos associated with moving and getting a variety of other things in order. So I think I've given a sizable update here associated with a variety of different things. Thank you very much for continuing to put up with these ever, you know, diverging, moving, changing perspective things associated with these, you know, these recordings. I think my hope is that I mean, Southern California and Las Vegas are very different associated with their gaming 
environments. COVID is no friend to any of this. And how that plays out, I don't know. I mean, obviously, COVID in some regard plays out to some move-related stuff as well. But to be frank, my wife is completely burnt out of Northern California. It looks like the gang wars went on in 2016. Was it 32 people killed within a a mile radius of our house? That was 2016 for us. So the notion that this might happen again, my wife is just, that's it. We're moving to Vegas. That's it. So, you know. But for some period, at least, we will continue to have this place in Northern California, probably, you know, vacant for some period of time. And, you know, the whole thing is just very, very curious. But, yeah, COVID also obviously plays a role in this as well. So my hope is to be in a better, in a better environment for a good portion of next year. And that, I think, will probably be contributive to just good cognitive development and good rules development and a variety of things with which this particular recording should profit. Tom Barbalay in San Jose, signing out.